Hey everyone, it is Marcus and Candice here. We want to welcome you back to Hunger, the podcast. Right now in our first season, Sacred Scars, Life After Religious Trauma. And I'm really, really excited, or I should say we are really excited about today's episode, because in today's episode, we're looking at 11 Bible verses that get misused or abused in ways that cause harm. And we're going to explore that here in the next few moments. But before we do, I just want to take a moment to let everyone know, if you didn't know already, Candace and I released our first workshop last week. And uh, it's, it's a workshop that really explores the topic of assurance of salvation. Now, depending on your religious trauma and depending on also your denomination, assurance of salvation can be a big deal. I know for me, coming from a Seventh-day Adventist background with a lot of fundamentalism in a lot of our local churches, this is a big issue. There's a lot of people in church who just never feel like they are safe in God's arms. And as a pastor for the last 10 years, this is something that I observed repeatedly, people struggling to know whether or not God had accepted them. Now, most of the time, what you do is you sit down and you give someone a really good Bible study on the gospel, on grace, on the new covenant, and that settles it. And they're able to move on and celebrate their newfound freedom and acceptance in Christ. But there are people for whom that just doesn't work. They just keep struggling year after year, no matter how many books they read or sermons they listen to that explain the gospel well. They just keep struggling with this insecurity and this fear that God is going to abandon them or neglect them or reject them uh, when it all comes down to it. And this is what our workshop really focuses on. So it's titled Never Good Enough, Attachment Theory and the Assurance of Salvation. And if you take the time to watch this workshop, it's five videos. I think you'll walk away with a lot of really, really good insight as to why this happens and also how to heal. So it's a great resource for pastors, for religious leaders, and for therapists, as well as families or friends of religious trauma survivors who struggle with fears of God's rejection. And of course, it's a perfect resource for individuals who find themselves in need of insight and healing in their spiritual life. It comes with a poster and a PDF download as well, uh, all together there with the workshop. Now, I do want to say one more thing, Candice. I know you're waiting very patiently there. Um, just want to say one more thing about this workshop. Uh, the workshops are available on our website, hungerpodcast.com. There are many more workshops coming. And they're usually priced roughly depending on how many videos are in the workshop. So this particular workshop is priced at $45. But I do want to say something very, very important. If you're looking at this and you're thinking, I really would love to get a hold of this workshop. I really want to listen to it. I want to watch it. I want to see what Marcus and Candace talk about, not only with this workshop, but also with future workshops that are coming but I don't have $45. That's a lot of money. Or, you know, maybe I have it once, but there's many other workshops that I want to watch and I don't have $45 each and every time. And of course, some of them will be a little bit more expensive than that. Uh, I do want to remind every one of you that we have an app. It's called Hunger, the app, the devotional app, and all of the workshops will actually be available on that app. And here's the best part. It's only $4.99 a month. So just think about it. You can download a workshop for 45 bucks every time one comes out, possibly even more depending on the amount of videos, or you can subscribe to the app, Hunger the App, for just $4.99 a month, 
and the workshops will be available on that app. Every workshop that we publish will be available on that app. In fact, there are workshops coming up that are not available on the website yet that are already on the app. For example, Decolonizing God, Dismantling Abusive Pictures of Divinity. There's four videos on that. That's already on the app. And it's coming out on the website this week, again, for $45. So please, if if the $45 price tag is too big, join the app. Download the app. It's available for Apple. It's available for Android at the Google Play Store for $4.99 a month, which is extremely affordable. You can have access to all this incredible content. Because for Candace and I, our main goal, although obviously we need uh, a sustainable business, but our main goal is we want to help you guys in your healing journey. We want to provide resources that are accessible for each of you as you heal these wounds. So anyways, all of that stuff aside, Candice, <laughs> I'm ready now to actually get into our topic today, 11 Bible verses that get misused uh, and, and, you know, people misuse them in ways that are very harmful. They cause a lot of pain. And in worst case scenarios, these Bible verses get abused to the degree that religious trauma survivors may even be afraid to read the Bible. So anyways, I've talked a lot, so I'm going to, I'm going to just say one more thing. And then we're going to look at these 11 verses. Here's the one more thing I want to say. When Candace and I explore these Bible verses, please bear in mind that some people use these verses intentionally to control and to cause harm. However, what is the more likely scenario, and I've seen this many years as a pastor, is that people misuse or abuse these Bible verses without any ill intent, at least not active ill intent. Sometimes they themselves have heard the verses be misused so much that they've just accepted it as part of what Christians believe or how they approach certain things. Sometimes certain denominations or entire religious uh, cosmologies, theologies, or communities have certain perspectives that color the way they look at certain verses. And so people aren't always maliciously using these to cause harm. There are those cases, yes. But most of the time, people are actually thinking that they're helping. They actually think they're offering some great wisdom without realizing the harm that they're causing. And that's really important to keep in mind because it allows us to look at such scenarios and such people with compassion. And compassion is just a really powerful phenomenon in our healing journey. So with all that said, Candice, thank you for waiting so patiently for my super long monologue there at the beginning. Uh, welcome back to Hunger. How how are you doing? How's how's life been treating you these last this last week? Yeah, life has been really really good. Just really busy working in my practice and have a lot of things moving, a lot of things going on. So yeah, but I'm really looking forward to this episode and I'm excited to be here. Well, let's let's dive in. Um, Eleven Bible verses. Eleven Bible verses that get abused. There's actually one more thing I was going to mention earlier, Candice, and um, I just, just remembered it now. I, I didn't actually just like sort of go on Google and find 11 verses. That's not what I did. What I actually did, and, and you've seen the post, is I, I posted on Facebook and Instagram, and I asked people, what are Bible verses that have been misused to control or to cause harm in your own experience? I'd like to hear what Bible verses have been used that way in, in your experience. And um, man, there were so many comments, mm. like so many comments that 
we ended up with way more than 11 Bible verses. So <laughs> for those of you listening, I am sorry, we are not going to be able to cover every verse that was brought up. Um, I, I picked the most common ones, the ones that came up most often, but we're not going to be able to cover all of them. But I hope either way that with this episode, you can be inspired and encouraged to realize that, you know, people misuse scripture all the time. And, and there's a beautiful way of reading it. There's a harmful way of reading it. And there's a beautiful way of reading it. But thank you to everyone who commented and shared because you guys have actually helped shape what this episode is going to be like. So here's the first one, Candice. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Now, this is actually a really beautiful verse, but I'm going to explain in a second how it gets misused and abused. And then I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, that sounds great, right? Like, how could that possibly be misused? Um, and, and the stories that I hear from many people is that this particular verse tends to get thrown out when a person is actually suffering from mental health issues or, say, for example, an anxiety disorder. And instead of a person of faith listening to them and holding space for them, if they say, oh, I've been struggling with anxiety or I have this anxiety disorder or, you know, I need this medication or whatever it might be, they use this verse kind of like as a way of saying, don't be anxious. It's that simple, right? Like, just don't be anxious because look what the Bible says. And so people actually take these verses, which are meant to be encouraging in the, in the general scheme of life, and they improperly apply them to people who are suffering from something beyond just basic anxiety. They may have an anxiety disorder or maybe be going through a season in their life that's extremely difficult. And so instead of holding space for them, we bypass or, or almost insult their experience by saying, hey, Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious. Now do it. You know what I mean? So hopefully that mm -hmm. makes sense. Um, from your perspective, from a psychotherapeutic perspective, how, how do you how do you interact with this? Well, I think being anxious is a very real response to the human experience, right? In fact, being anxious has kept us safe for a long time. For example, there are certain situations where we need our anxiety and stress response to increase so we know to remove ourselves from possible danger, right? But there are also times where our stress response becomes maladaptive, as we know, and we struggle to cope. And I want to point out here the context of this verse. As some of us might know, Paul was in a highly stressful situation when he was saying this, right? And maybe he was well within his window of tolerance here, meaning he didn't become hyper-aroused where he was overwhelmed with panic or hypo-aroused where he was completely shut down. He was able to stay somewhere in between. But it's very important to look at the verse right before this one, where it says the Lord is near. And I don't know why this isn't emphasized here more. We just seem to focus on this verse where we tell people not to be anxious, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so we choose a specific verse, we blow it up out of context and we just say, don't do this, right? But when you look at the verse before, it's saying not to be anxious. It's saying the Lord is near. Mm. And I think 
in the context of that previous verse, what Paul's really saying is, hey, you are not alone. You don't have to ride this wave of panic alone. You don't have to feel overwhelmed alone, which is what I believe this whole verse in its proper context is actually saying. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that's actually, I love that you mentioned that because it, it gives us something practical that we can we can say to people, you know, when someone is expressing their struggles with mental health or with anxiety, uh, look at the verse before and focus on that one, right? Maybe, maybe don't go to Philippians 4, 6. Look at Philippians 4, 5, you know, the Lord is near. Now, can you imagine how much more beautiful and healing the conversation would be if we focused on that, right? Well, I, I don't think we have to necessarily remove ourselves from this verse. I think we need to see the context of this verse where he's he's emphasizing God's closeness, you know. And mm. so, yes, you might be anxious, but God is close by. He's with you. And I think that's that when you see it in that context, it's not a behavioral issue. Stop being anxious. Just get over it. Forget it. It's, hey, you don't have to go through this on your own. Yeah. And that's at least what I'm gathering from these this verse put into context. And, and I think it's important, you know, to note as well that for a lot of people, when they're going through difficulty, it's very difficult when you're going through a really hard time to conceptualize of an abstract concept like God is near. But when we as believers can be near each other in, in these times of difficulty, when we can honor each other's experience and be gentle with one another and encouraging rather than, you know, just throwing Bible verses out in a willy nilly way, when we have that closeness and, and share that closeness with others, it enables or it activates our ability to feel God's closeness as well. You know, it's almost like my closeness with you enables you to experience the closeness that God has for you as well. Whereas if I'm not being close to you, if I'm just throwing Bible verses at you to try and fix you, it makes it harder for you to also experience the closeness of God. They're intertwined, the community and our relationship with God, you know, and, and just to sort of move on to the next verse, I would also add that it's important for, for us to know the difference between like a basic anxiety and when we're talking about an anxiety disorder that's rooted in much more complex things. I love this meme. It like is this meme that floats around and it's, it's like this person who's anxious and then someone says to them, stop being anxious. And then the person like slaps their forehead and says, oh my goodness, why didn't I think of that? You know, like, thank you so much. You fixed it. I'm, I'm all good now. You know, and it's, it's sarcastic, but it's intending to point out that if it was that easy to not be anxious, I wouldn't be anxious because why would I choose to be? It's, it's not a fun experience. It's, it can be very debilitating. And I think it's important for us to recognize that, right? There's a difference, again, between maybe having just a basic anxiety that most people go through seasons in their life where they're worried about this or that, or actually having an anxiety disorder, a depression, a depressive disorder as well, or or even, you know, having neurodivergence that makes some of these, these scenarios a little bit more difficult to navigate. And so not treating Bible verses like one size fits all formulas that you just throw around without context 
and expect people to just be better. In fact, it, it will cause more harm when we do that. So, um, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to go to the next one. Uh, this is Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine. Whew, man. Okay, let me just take a deep breath before this one because <laughs> this, this is a really big one. It's so big. I don't know that we'll necessarily be able to do it full justice in an episode where we're looking at 11 verses. You know, we don't have a whole hour to just talk about this one. Uh, so this is something that we'll definitely come around to in a future episode and explore on its own. But I think we can still offer something in insightful today. Jeremiah 17, 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Now, how is this verse used in, in, a, in a toxic way? It's generally used to make people feel like garbage, to make people like feel like they're no good. In high control religions, this is very, very important because if you can get a person to feel like garbage, you can get them to feel like there's nothing good about them whatsoever. They're just complete worms. Such people, once they buy into that idea, they become easier to control, right? And so this is this is and this is how the text is misused and and i think this is like i'm 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 being very careful here because i don't want to open up a, a giant can that, that i don't have time to explore right now but there's a sense that you cannot deny in scripture where it certainly speaks of the fallenness of the human being right but how this text is then used as a way of manipulation as a way of control as a way of amplifying guilt, amplifying shame, you can look throughout Christian history and you can see how this perspective was used that way. And it was even used not only as a tool of control, but also as a tool of monetization, right? If we can monetize people's inherent guilt and their inherent shame and their inherent worthlessness, uh, their inherent garbageness, and we can quote verses like this, uh, then we can we can make money off of this, you know, and a lot of, you know, for example, cathedrals that were built, wars that were fought throughout Christian history were fueled by this sense of self-loathing that theology was amplifying. Um, so I'm going to pause there because, like I said, this is a big one, man. It's a big conversation. But I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well. And then maybe I'll circle back and, and do some closing ones. Yeah, so this is a really, really big topic, and we could talk about this for a long time. Uh, first, I guess I want to backtrack just a little bit and talk about how we are created in the image of God, right? We're made in his likeness, his goodness, and we were made for a different world than this, right? And this is all going to make sense by the time I'm done <laughs> uh, to this verse. But the first relational rupture, the first tragedy first trauma we experienced was a separation from God. How we are living now, this was not how it was supposed to be. Mm. We long to be with him, right? But now we find ourselves living this human experience and we are trying to make sense of it. All of the suffering, all of the pain, the beauty and the awe. And this is what I like to refer to as a terrible beauty. And all of this stuff that is happening it's coming in toward us it's come it surrounds us right it comes from our environments it comes from our culture our experiences our upbringing and it starts in the womb right as we're listening to the rhythm 
of our mother's heartbeat and we're feeling the warmth of the water on our skin and as life is happening to her it is happening to me and maybe it is great and maybe it is not but I am impacted by it right this is where it begins and then I am born and do my caregivers respond to me in the way I need maybe maybe not what about my extended family my friends my teachers my culture Am I living in poverty? Is my neighborhood safe? What are the values of my culture, right? And I could go on. So there's things that happen to us. And the point I'm trying to make here is we need to stop focusing on us as being bad and born into this world bad. We are not awful and disgusting. It's just there are things that happen to us, right, from outside of us. A lot of things violate us. So the question should not be what is wrong with you, but rather in the words of Bruce Perry, the important question is what happened to you? So we're impacted by what is happening now in this human experience. And if you see the person as more than just behavior and thoughts, you can see how our bodies, our emotions and our feelings, our thinking, our felt sense, right? All of it is impacted Instead of shaming people into believing they are nothing and can't be trusted, you can now seek to understand them and remind them who they are. Mm. They are wonderful beings. We're all made in the creator's likeness and we are having a human experience. And what needs to happen, it's not that we're just deceitful and we can't trust ourselves. It's just an invitation to stay connected to the source, our creator, our maker. So that's how I make sense of this verse. We're born into this world having these human experiences mm. and we're not born into this world as worms, right? We're yeah. impacted by the world. We're trying to make sense of it. Yeah. And we need to be able to come to the creator to help us to make sense of it. I really appreciate that perspective because what you, essentially what you're saying is that even though Genesis 3 happened, Genesis 1 came first, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Jefferson Beth talks about this in one of his books, that in a lot of Christian churches, we tend to begin the story at Genesis 3. Oh, you know, humanity fell and look how terrible we are. And, and he encourages us, we need, to, we need to start the story where the story actually begins, which is Genesis 1, which is we're made in the image of God, we're made in the image of creator. And that that's something beautiful. And again, I, I don't have time to go too deep into this one. I would love to do a whole episode or even a whole workshop just on this because there's so much that we can explore here. But I do want to point out two things that I think are really, really important. Um, the first is that we have to remember the context and the culture that wrote scripture, right? So, you know, for example, we read this even in the New Testament um, where there's this language of, you know, salvation can't be by flesh and blood, you know, and there's, you know, there's, there's nothing in us that can, that can get us to heaven. And by the way, I believe that. I believe that 100%. So in case anyone here is listening to this and thinking, oh, Marcus and Candace, you know, going down the humanist road here, we, we're not. So take it easy, okay? But I certainly believe that, but we have to understand scripture in its context. And one of the things that's really essential to understanding scripture in this context is that it was written by the Hebrew people. 
and these are the people that God set apart as a nation. And here's the thing. One of the ideas that developed throughout Hebrew Jewish history was the idea that because I was born a child of Abraham, I am guaranteed access to heaven, right? Now, if you're talking, you just remember Jesus when he spoke with Nicodemus, right, in the New Testament. He's talking to a Jew who believes because I have Abrahamic blood, and we can put it in modern terms, Abrahamic DNA, I am guaranteed access to heaven. To that person and to that worldview and to that anthropology or cosmology, Jesus has to turn around and say, actually, you have to be born again. Now, why does he say that? Because he's trying to emphasize that you can't go to heaven because of your DNA, man. You know, And so when you have a cosmology or an anthropology that says, I am guaranteed access to heaven because I have Abraham's bloodline, to that worldview, the gospel can come across quite harsh. It's like, actually, there is nothing in you that even remotely recommends you to heaven. There's nothing good in you, right? And you can see how that makes sense as it challenges this concept that this sort of nationalistic sectarian concept that I'm, I have everything I need because I have this particular bloodline. Everyone else is lost, but we're going to heaven because we have this bloodline. To that, the language of scripture, there's nothing good in us. is very, very important. But what's interesting is Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again, right? What's interesting is in the very next chapter, he meets the Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman is, is not a Jew. She does not believe that she's going to heaven because she has Abrahamic blood. Um, they did have a lot of similarities with the Jews. They followed the Torah. They were waiting for a Messiah, but they also disliked each other quite. And for, for many historical complex reasons, I won't get into now. But what's interesting is when, when Jesus shares the gospel with the Samaritan woman, he doesn't tell her you need to be born again, right? What does he do instead? He says, I'm the living water and whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. So to Nicodemus, he challenges his anthropology and he's like, look, there's nothing, there's nothing in us that can get us into heaven. But that's because Nicodemus had a particular perspective that needed to be deconstructed. But to this woman who doesn't have that perspective, Jesus doesn't come swinging at her like, oh, you're, you're a worm and, you know, there's nothing good in you. And, you know, um, you, you, you have to be born. He doesn't even use the metaphor of born again. He just goes straight for her existential pain, which is, hey, you, you're thirsty and, and I can satisfy your thirst. And that's the gospel to her, right? And so I think we need to understand that when we're reading scripture as, as a book written by a particular culture with particular worldviews, that a lot of this messaging is intended to challenge some of the ways in which that worldview was being calcified into nationalism, calcified into elitism, calcified into sectarianism, and that the prophets are challenging this and saying pretty harsh things. But it's because they're aiming to deconstruct these elite mentalities, these unhealthy mentalities that are developing. It's not because God wants human beings everywhere to feel like garbage. And I think for me, the part that I really, really struggle with, and actually we're going to look at this a little bit later on, so I'm not going to say too much about it now, but it's when people use a verse like this to tell someone, because your heart is so deceitful, you cannot trust yourself. So what's the solution? You have to do what we tell you. 
And, and I've seen that misused in really, really terrible ways. And, and maybe I'll save a story for later on because we're going to look at another verse that sort of taps on this. Um, but yeah, I would love to do a whole session on this because there's a, there's a really beautiful sort of nuance that can be experienced here. But like you, I would say the same thing. We are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of creator. That means we are beautiful. And sin has certainly impacted us and hurt us and violated us. And the objective of scripture is that God wants to restore us to the beauty that is ours. It's not that you are a worm, that you are garbage. It's actually, you're beautiful. You are incredible. But there's something in the way that's blocking that. And God wants to liberate us from that. And that's a bigger discussion that we'll have um, that we'll have in 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 a future session. All right, I'm going to move on to uh, another verse. Um, so this is from Revelation chapter three, verses fifteen through sixteen. And uh, if you grew up in a church that wasn't too big on Revelation, then you may not be familiar with this one. But I grew up in a church that was really into Revelation, so I used to hear this one all the time. And this one got brought up quite a few times in um in the comments as well. Revelation 3, 15 to 16, Jesus speaking, uh, this is part of a vision of the seven churches. And he says, I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. So it's essentially this imagery of Jesus vomiting his people out of his mouth. And how is this verse used? Basically, I've heard it used in church as a way of telling people you're not committed enough you're, you're, you're not, you know, um, you're not working hard enough. And if, and if, and if you don't up your commitment level, if you don't upgrade your, your, your sort of hard work, then God is going to spew you out of his mouth. Um, so yeah, talk, talk to me about this one, Candice. I'm pretty sure you've interacted with this one as well in your own journey. I struggled with this one when I first heard it, I really became paranoid and I could definitely go into my story sometime in the future about the different things that have happened to me when I've been really overwhelmed by verses like this. Going back to this verse, something tells me this is not about us as individuals, but rather people in power. So I really think it'd be really helpful if you could elaborate more on that. The difficulty that I have with this particular text is that it's often used to berate struggling people. Now, there's a really interesting text in the Old Testament where it says that Jesus is a prophecy of Jesus. It said he would never break a bruised reed. Now, the bruised reed is a metaphor for people who have been beat up by life, right? And that Jesus wasn't going to show up and break these bruised reeds with demands and religion, right? He would never do that. He would, he would deal tenderly and compassionately with people who are struggling, with people who are hurting. And you see that in his life. He never berated prostitutes. He never berated drunkards. He never berated tax collectors, even though they were traitors and con artists and thieves, right? He never berated struggling people. He always nurtured them. He loved them. He spent time with them. The only people in the gospels that Jesus ever went hard on were the religious elite. And it's no different, in, no different in Revelation chapter 3. And Revelation chapter 3 is part of a set of visions um, or a part of a vision with seven sets, and it's called the seven churches. And by the time it gets to the seventh church, it's talking about people who are religiously comfortable. 
they're religiously elite. They're just, you know, they're, they're sort of riding high, like, look at us, you know, we don't need anything. We're good. And whenever you have that attitude of luxury and elitism and, and comfort and wealth in this world, you know, that the people who are enjoying that privilege are doing it at the expense of others, right? Because you don't, you don't, you don't get to be elite unless somebody else is suffering. That's just kind of the way the matrix works in a fallen world, right? I get to be at the top of the heap because other people at the bottom are, are suffering. And so by, by the time you get to this text in Revelation, you're really dealing with a, a season in church history or a or a, a a collective of of people in power and religious power who are very comfortable and they occupy positions of of strength and influence and power and and perhaps even you know wealth and they're happy and they're content and they think they're doing God a favor in other words they sound a lot like the pharisees in the new testament and so jesus speaks to them and he's like hey I'm going to tell you something really harsh. And that makes sense because he was always harsh with the religious elites. So I don't think we need to tone down the harshness of the verse because really fundamentally prophecy in scripture is a protest, right? It's a protest of injustice, of oppression, marginalization, exploitation. So the words have to be harsh because protest language is always hyperbolic. It's always harsh. The problem is that we apply this verse, which is intended as a protest of religious elites, and we take the language and we use it to beat up everyday people who are struggling. We use it to hammer bruised reeds. And that's where I'm like, nah, man, that's not it. That's not what's happening here, you know? And so just like Jesus always went harsh on the religious elites, but was always gentle with everyday people. I think particularly the book of Revelation, we need to be very careful with it because the book of Revelation is a protest of power. It's a protest of empire. And in a very central way, it's a protest of how religion and empire work together to build systems of oppression, right? And these harsh words are necessarily harsh because they're protesting these systems and these structures, these scaffolds of marginalization. But they are not there to hammer everyday people who are struggling, you know? So I feel bad. Like I'm sitting in church and there's these people sitting around me and, you know, and there's the, there's the lady over there who's, who's got severe trauma and she's just doing her best and she's trying and she's been, you know, sort of wrestling with her alcohol addiction and she's having a really hard time at it. And, you know, she was sober for a few months, but she just recently relapsed. And, and there's the guy over there who, you know, lost his job and he's been stressed and just working really hard to try and find, you know, how am I going to provide for my family? And, uh, you know, maybe did a few things that he wasn't too proud of, you know, maybe he, he, maybe he skipped church a few times to go to work instead, you know, to, to provide for his kids. You know, there's all these different scenarios. And then up comes the preacher and says, you know, because you're neither cold nor hot, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. That's what God says. And he directs it at those people. I'm like, no, that is a misuse and an abuse of the text. If you look at it in its context, it's more likely that the verse applies to the preacher than to the people that he's preaching it to, you know? So anyways, I hope that 
that helps a little bit. Um, but I do think if we if we if we see it from that perspective, we can appreciate the harshness, but within its proper orientation, which is against mm -hmm. systems of power, not people who are hurting. So, and by the way, just before we move on to the next verse, it's probably a good point to say that if you go to our website, hungerpodcast.com, and you click on the link for the app and you download that app, there is actually an entire season where I break down the book of Revelation with life coach Joe Brown. There's a whole season where we look at Revelation through that lens that I just described. So, because a lot of people have like Revelation trauma, right? Like they've heard the book of Revelation presented in ways that are very, very, very damaging. And so what we do in this series is we break the book of Revelation down from a Jewish perspective, a Jewish lens, resistance to these systems of power. And that by the end, not only will you understand the book of Revelation, but you'll have relief from these fears that dominate you from this, you know, Revelation apocalyptic drama, um, because you'll, you'll be able to see what the text is actually, what its orientation actually is and what it's actually talking about. And in fact, you've realized like, hey, this is actually really beautiful. It's promising us a world that is not like this world where there's all of these systems and structures that feed the elites at the top at the expense and suffering of the people, everyday people at the bottom. And I think that that series will really, really help for any of you who are struggling with that. So download Hunger, the app. It's, it's, a, it's available on Apple and, and Google as well, uh, Android. And you can get the links at hungerpodcast.com. But I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next verse. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Oh, man. Okay, here's another one. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, I heard this. Look, I grew up as Seventh-day Adventist, like I mentioned earlier. And Seventh-day Adventism can be, and this is my sort of short little synopsis, it can be one of the most beautiful expressions of faith in Jesus and simultaneously one of the ugliest. And it really depends on whether you find yourself in a local church that is fundamentalist and perfectionistic. And I did. So <laughs> this verse was quoted by preachers who were really into this perfectionistic behavioral theology, where it was basically like God expects you to be perfect. You cannot sin. You have to stop sinning. In fact, Jesus won't come back until you stop sinning, all that sort of stuff. Now, I don't want to get into all the ins and outs of that because that's not really the focus of this podcast. But this verse here, definitely harmful, used to promote perfectionistic behavioral environments, which in my experience, Candace, actually creates some of the coldest, harshest, most tense and traumatizing environments where any trauma that you experience from the way the preacher used the verse is now amplified by the way people around you act when they take this stuff to heart. Um, I'll circle back around to that <laughs> toward the end, but tell me a little bit more just from your perspective. Well, I've researched what perfect means. And I think my favorite definition of perfect means to be whole. Mm. We often focus on the behavioral and cognitive aspect when we're talking about being perfect. Uh, but perfect means to be whole. And as a psychotherapist, being whole to me means being in rhythm. So it's not just your thoughts and behaviors, but your whole being, right? So your body awareness, your connection to your felt sense, uh, your connection to the spirit, 
your connection to the earth, right? Everything. Mm. And the reason why this is important is because if we are not whole, we are split off in some way from parts of ourselves. And so when we are split off from parts of ourselves, we can't fully be here. And so if we're not fully here, then where are we? Mm. So, and are we really whole if we're not fully here? So I think being called to be perfect is more of an invitation to go on a journey of healing or a journey to understand who we are deeply. So we can be fully here. We can be fully present in our relationships. Mm -hmm. And what happens when we're fully present in our relationships, we can then support and nurture these relational experiences. And so why is that important? And that's important because we can prevent cycles of pain and trauma and suffering. So it's not to be good, it's to be present, to be here, to be fully here. And you know that that actually makes a lot of sense when you think about the context of what Jesus is saying here too. Because just before he says be perfect, he's talking about how God loves even his enemies. You know, so he's like God loves everyone. He loves everyone unconditionally. He, he gives rain to the good and the bad. You know, he, he provides for, 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 for even the people who reject him. And then as Jesus finishes describing this unconditional love of God, he looks at his disciples and he says, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. It's an invitation to love. It's fundamentally mm -hmm. what Jesus is saying here. It's not an invitation to behavioral modification or to strict, stoic, ascetic uh, ways of being. It's an invitation to love. And like you said, you know, that holistic, to be holistic, to, to, to be a person who's not fragmented, but living, you know, like we are in rhythm within ourselves, enables us to be a healing balm wherever we find ourselves in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, like if someone had said to me, hey, God wants you to love like he loves. And, and the way in which he does that is, First, he pours out his love on you and fills you with his love. And then he calls you to be a, like, like a, you know, how, how do you put it? Like, it's kind of like a river of love flowing through you that can now flow out to, to others. And you can live that way. You can, everywhere you go, you can be like this, this sort of like this channel of that love. Every, and and it's just like brings healing and beauty, not only to your own life and to your own inner rhythms, but to the places that you find yourself. And that's what it means to be perfect, right? From a from a Christ-like perspective, from a biblical perspective. I would have been like, yo, that's actually kind of cool. I know I can't mm -hmm. manufacture that, but I think it's awesome that God wants to do that in my life. Like, I'm keen, do, do your thing, bro. Like, make it happen, you know? But the way it's framed where it's like, oh, you know, you have to be perfect and you can't do this and you can't do that. You have to follow all these rules. And and let's be honest here as well, Candice, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in, the, in, a, in a second. Nine times out of 10, people who preach a perfectionistic theology also have a Eurocentric view of morality. And so mm -hmm. they believe that proper behavior is very, like proper behavior has to be filtered through the lens of Eurocentric cultural values. So you have to dress a certain way. You have to listen to certain music. And it all happens to be European, you know, like <laughs> European influence dress codes and musical codes, et cetera. And so in a certain sense, it's a very cultural elitist perspective that comes, that's just extra baggage that comes along with, with this sort of messaging. And uh, yeah, so, but I think 
what Jesus is really inviting us to is a relational experience, a relational experience that is really all about love. It's not about perfect behavior. And I, in fact, I've said this many times in the past, and I think it bears worth repeating here that you will never grow in your relationship with God if you don't feel safe in his arms. If you feel like you have to be perfect in order for God to accept you, you're never actually going to be able to grow in that relationship because think about any relationship. Think about a marriage or a, you know, a, a friend or, you know, a, a relationship in, in a team, you know, playing sports or whatever. Think about any relationship in life where you will thrive if you're expected to be perfect and to never mess up and to do everything right. And then when you do that, then I'll accept you. Th those relationships are doomed to fail from the start. If, if you find yourself in a relationship like that, they're narcissistic, they're controlling, they're cruel, they're harmful, they're damaging, they're sadistic. And what makes it any different with God? God is the one who engineered what relationships look like. So if he didn't engineer for, for example, a marriage relationship to thrive with this type of pressure, why would he expect our relationship with him to thrive with this type of pressure? It, it makes no sense. And so the reality is that this is an invitation, again, like you mentioned, to relational integrity, relational reciprocity with God, where he brings rhythm and balance and harmony into our being so that we can then be agents of change and healing in the places that we find ourselves. And I would add one more thing as well, and that is that from a Jewish perspective, and again, the Bible's a Jewish book, you know, um, perfection means something different to the Jewish mind than it does to the Western mind. So I'll try and be brief here because this can get kind of philosophical and, and nerdy. But in the Western mind, pr pr primarily influenced by Greek philosophy, perfection has a certain definition. So in Greek thinking, so Platonism, for example, perfection happens when something is no longer changing, right? So for a Greek, if something is changing, it's not perfect. It's only perfect if it's if it doesn't change. So Greeks imagined God as someone who was timeless and outside of, you know, he couldn't be impacted by history because any change in God would mean he wasn't perfect. So in order for him to be perfect, he had to be like this, almost like this eternally frozen energy uh, with no personhood or personality, because then that would imply change and growth. Um, and you can't have that because then he's no longer perfect, right? And so a lot of times perfectionistic preachers bring this Greek philosophy into their, into their messaging where it's like, you are perfect as a human being when you're no longer sinning, right? You, you, and, and not only are you no longer sinning, you stopped, you don't, you don't need to change anymore because you've reached a point of moral perfection where now you've arrived. And because you no longer need to change, now you're perfect. That's a very Greek idea. Jewish thinking is very different. In Jewish thinking, perfection isn't about no longer changing or reaching some finish line where you're no longer changing. In Jewish thinking, perfection is about, it's about stages. So the best way I can describe it to keep it simple is think of a baby, right? From a Greek perspective, a baby's not perfect because he's changing, he's growing, he's, he's developing. And, and so he's not perfect. In fact, the human being never will be perfect because they're always changing and always developing, et cetera. So from a Greek perspective, a baby wouldn't be perfect. But from a Jewish perspective, a baby is perfect. He's a perfect baby, right? 
and he crawls, you know, when he gets to crawl stage. And that's perfect because he's a perfect baby. And he says silly words, you know, like Dada. And that's perfect because that's what you expect to see at that stage of his development. Now, when the baby is no longer a baby, let's say he's a toddler and now he can say, um, you know, bigger words and he can walk on his feet. He's now a perfect toddler. Now, just because he can walk on his feet and the baby couldn't walk on his feet doesn't mean the baby wasn't perfect. It just means the baby was a baby. He was a perfect baby, right? And now he's a perfect toddler. And so then when you become a teenager, you're a perfect teenager. Now you can say, you know, now you can memorize the Torah and say, you know, full sentences and communicate bigger ideas. You couldn't do that as a toddler, but you were a toddler. You were a perfect toddler. Now you're a perfect teenager and so on and so forth, right? So this is what philosophers or theologians have often termed relative perfection, the Jewish perspective. It's relative perfection. It's like you are perfect at the stage that you are in right now because this is what it's supposed to look like. And in the future, you'll look different. You'll be in a different stage, and that'll be perfect as well. Very, very different from the Greek approach. So when we think of that, it's like God is calling us on a journey of development. And at every stage of the journey, as we feel safe in his arms and we grow and we develop at every stage, it's viewed as perfect because that's the stage you're in. you know. And so I think when we look at this from a Jewish perspective, it, it helps to alleviate a lot of these anxieties and these fears that often accompany the type of toxic messaging that a lot of these perfectionistic um, preachers like to like to like to push. But anyways, I'm going to move on from this because again, I don't want to go on and on just about that one. We've got a few more verses to look at here. So Mark chapter one, verse thirty-five. Um, this one, I'll, I'll I'll tell you how this one gets misused. Very early in the morning, while it was dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. So Jesus is, you know, this is his sort of like his devotional sort of you know, meditative life. Um, and, and here's how it tends to get misused. I remember uh, there was a period in my life where I was going through a really difficult time and I spoke to a pastor and I said, Hey man, I'm going through depression. I'm having all these challenges, all these issues. You know, I just, just wondering if I, you know, you have any wisdom that you can share with me. And this is what he told me. He said, you need to be getting up at four o'clock in the morning to read your Bible and pray. That's the solution, you know? And, and that's how this verse is misused. It's like, look, Jesus was getting up super early in the morning. So anytime you're having a difficulty in your life, you need to be up super early in the morning. We're going to bypass real issues, just have a better devotional life, and it'll go away. And this impacted me for a while. And I remember even when I was in university and I had really, really bad depression for a number of years, sometimes I would pray up to three hours a day, you know, praying and praying and praying for up to three hours a day. And I was a student, so I didn't have much else to do but pray and go to class. And obviously I was studying theology to be a pastor, right? So I'm in my Bible all the time as well. And it didn't help at all. And so, it, you know, nothing helped until I actually went to see a therapist and got some proper, like <laughs> got some proper help. So I think this is one of those verses where when someone's going through difficult times, we just throw the platitude out. Oh, you know, have a better devotional life, spend more time, get up earlier. You know, I get up at six, get up at five. I get up at five, get up at four. It's like, yeah, how, how much further back are we going to go here? You know? So, so hopefully that makes sense. It's, it's, it's a beautiful text, obviously describing Jesus meditative practice. Uh, but it's used to bypass real issues in the name of just have a better devotional life and all your problems will go away, which isn't, isn't true, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it from your perspective. Well, I think sacred time with God is important, but there is also a sacredness in us coming together 
and supporting each other through real issues. Mm. So in our colonized, individualistic, rationalistic, reductionistic societies, it's easy to just tell someone to go off and pray more or spend more time with God at a certain hour. And often they're having to do it alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are accountable and responsible here to meet each other in our suffering. And I think in some cases, some people might also say this because they can't fix it for the other person. So there is a pressure here that they might feel to fix it, but because they can't, they say, just go get up earlier and spend time with God, right? That helps me. But if only they knew that they don't have to fix it, right? It's okay. You can hold space for someone in a world that is chaotic and loud and busy and that is always telling us what to do, what mm-hmm. to consume and how to live. And that is incredibly healing and powerful to just be there with the person. But when we try to fix it by telling someone this, like this verse, it's more about us and how uncomfortable we feel with their feelings or how uncomfortable we feel not being able to resolve their problem than the actual person and their pain. Mm. That's deep, man. That's deep. Yeah. And I can see that. I can, that's very, very true. Cause like there's a tendency to do that. I think in church communities and it's probably a tendency in human beings altogether that someone has a problem. We want to fix it. And so obviously I don't know how to fix it. So I'm just going to resort to the platitudes I've always heard uh, as a way of, of trying to fix it. And sometimes those platitudes are very benign, like, Oh, just spend more time with God. And sometimes they're very, harmful like well if you did have if you did spend more time with god and your faith was stronger you wouldn't have these problems would you you know and that's a even more more of a toxic manifestation of that idea um but i would also add like i love what you said there like you know like community like just being together you know um there's there's so much beauty and healing power in that but in sort of a western individualist perspective we're always trying to outsource stuff so it's like, oh, you have problems in your life and outsource it to your devotional time. Just spend more time and it'll get better rather than actually navigating and journeying with a person. Uh, but I would also add as well, and you would agree with this, Candice, it's okay to, number one, obviously listen to a person and what they're going through. And number two, it's okay to say, hey, you know, I'm here for you, but I, I think this sounds like a, a scenario where you could really use professional support. Maybe maybe you might need to see a therapist, a counselor. Uh, you might need to reach out, you know, reach out to your GP and just develop a mental health care plan. That's perfectly okay. You don't always have to throw a Bible verse at something or just tell someone to pray harder. We need to normalize this, I think is what I'm saying, Candace. Mm-hmm. We need to normalize the response of, hey, I think in this particular scenario, have you considered this? You know, have you considered maybe reaching out and getting some help um, rather than just, again, dropping platitudes at people thinking. And sometimes like, I, I think this is one of those verses that people use thinking that they're helping. And again, for the most part, it really, it really isn't helping. I'm going to move on to the next one because uh, we, we've got a handful to go and not a lot of time. So let me go ahead and, and, and move on to this next one. Uh, Matthew 24, 24 for false messiahs and false False prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. 
again, if you grew up in a church that wasn't all too crazy about end time events, maybe you hadn't heard this one, but some churches really are like mine. This is one that was used a lot. And I'll tell you what, how it was used, Candace. It was used, this verse was used to attack anything that is remotely different. And, and by, by different, I mean anything that's remotely different to the traditions that we're already familiar with. And, um, and what it does is it creates a culture of what I've termed deception paranoia. I've seen this so much in the churches that I grew up in and even in the churches that I've pastored over the last 10 years, a culture of deception paranoia. We're always worried that someone's going to pull the wool over our eyes and we're going to end up losing our salvation, which is, again, uh, talking about that sort of insecurity of assurance. But putting that aside, because we've already done some content on that, I just want to focus on this concept of this deception paranoia and this the way this text is used. You know, it could be something really simple, like there's a young person in the church who wants to try something new, you know, like, hey, um, <laughs> you know, just some some basic changes to make our church a little bit more relevant. And people are sitting around, oh, you know, false messiahs and false prophets, you know, people are going to be deceived. Don't change anything. You know, it's like this paranoia again. Um, yeah. What what are what what is your your thoughts on this uh, from from an angle of like looking at this psychologically? Well, different is threatening, right? It shatters the world we have built for ourselves. It shatters what makes us feel safe, secure, certain. And there is no room here in these situations for curiosity. So people will down the other person. They will distance the other person. They engage in self-protective behavior. And what I believe this verse is really inviting us to do is to just be aware, but it's really hard to do that and can be really threatening if the foundation of our being is cracked and hardly supportive for everything else to stand on. So something different, something new yeah. coming in. Yeah, definitely. And and I would add that for anyone who's wrestling with this or you have church members or family members who have that sort of like deception paranoia or like you said, uh, just unable to even accept anything new or different, they're always feeling threatened, the workshop that we did will probably give a lot of insight. The Never Good Enough workshop will give lots and lots of insight into what could be happening there and how to address it in a way that promotes healing and, and restoration. And, you know, we certainly want to be aware. I don't think that the world is all unicorns and rainbows and everyone's just running around telling the truth 100% of the time. There's a lot of nonsense out there and there's a healthy skepticism. There's a healthy dose of, of anxiety, like you said earlier. There's a healthy dose of looking at things with a bit of caution. But when that becomes disproportionate and it's where this paranoia culture when it becomes disproportionate like that i think what we're dealing with in those scenarios isn't really a theological problem it might masquerade as a theological problem it, it might masquerade as oh i just want to make sure i'm sticking to my faith and nothing's leading me astray but i think what's really at play is deep insecurities that probably transcend the spiritual scenario insecurities that you would see in other areas of a person's life. So definitely recommend the workshop Never Good Enough there uh, for you guys to check that out. Let me go ahead and, and move on to the next one. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 to 17. This one's very familiar for those of us raised in 
fundamentalist churches. Um, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I have heard this verse used many times to shut down thinking and conversation and to justify control, right? So a person might be saying, hey, I think like this about this scenario, or I think like that, or, you know, I disagree with what the church says about this or what the pastor says about that. And rather than inviting deeper dialogue and engaging it with curiosity, someone will just quote 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. That's what the Bible says. That's the end of it. So I'll give you an example. Um, I went to a guy's house one time for a Bible study and I was supposed to be having a Bible study with him and his son, but his son wasn't there. So I said to the guy, where's, where's your son? He says, oh, my son's not interested in the Bible study. He doesn't want to join in anymore. We've done a few of them already. And, and I thought he seemed really interested. So I was surprised. Why isn't he interested? Well, because he asked me a question and I gave him the answer. And he didn't like the answer. So he left. Well, what was the question? Well, the Bible says that women are allowed to speak in church. So um, he asked me a question about that. And I said to him, well, all scripture is God breathed. It says it. That's the end of it. You're not supposed to argue with it. You just have to accept it. Women aren't allowed to speak in church. End of story. And his son basically said, well, if that's the God you believe in, I want nothing to do with it. And he just left, you know, and he never did come back to a Bible study. And I was really heartbroken because, again, this is one of those moments where rather than critical thinking and curiosity, this person just looked at black and white. The text said it. That settles it. End of story. End of conversation. And I think that this type of thinking and this type of approach is used very, very often to justify control, uh, to justify narcissism within spiritual environments and then we call it faithfulness to the text but it's not faithfulness to the text it's it's control that's really at play here so yeah well how do you how do you interact with this yeah well i think it's very common in parenting um and even marriages you know i've seen it happen in a lot of marriage breakdown but what i would like to focus on here is when jesus taught important themes and messages he always used stories and metaphors and parables, right? Things that would spark our imagination and our wonder. And there was a lot of room for interpretation and discussion and curiosity. Uh, he was never cold and forceful or harsh. And so it just makes me think about how imagine if we all approached each other that way. Right. Imagine if our parenting and relationships were that open and curious and warm. Oh, so imagine if, I'm, yeah, like imagine if churches were like that. I think, I think if we had that culture of openness and curiosity and warmth, there, there wouldn't be as much religious trauma as there is now. You know, uh, in my opinion, in my experience as a pastor, as a religious trauma coach, is that religious trauma is always always related to an environment of power and i mean that's that's the trend you know that's the trend i i haven't met anyone who has religious trauma who was brought up in a warm curious and open faith community uh I, i've i've met many of them though who were brought up in communities or who spent time in communities not not just church communities it can be new age communities it can be even atheist communities political communities wherever control is the name of the game 
uh, and you've got the thought police, you know, and the and and the people who are like, you have to see it this way, you have to think about it this way, and you create these microaggressions within your community to get people to comply. Um, that's where literally everyone I've ever spoken to with religious trauma, every client I've ever worked with, that's what's always been at play. So I agree with you, man. I think this openness, this curiosity, this warmth is is really, I would say, an antidote to religious trauma. But obviously, we cannot be open, curious, and warm with others if we're not that way with ourselves. And a lot of times, these environments of control, you're talking about people with a lot of unprocessed traumas that mm -hmm. that they never dealt with, you know, and, and I think that's important to think about, because it can give us a little bit of compassion, in terms of like, how we relate to is not to excuse what's happening in these religious environments. But if we can have a little bit of compassion, it helps on the healing journey, to understand that, you know, a lot of times, even people who are, are really nasty are acting out of unprocessed wounds, somebody else hurt them, you know, and they're acting these things out. And sometimes they don't know any better. Sometimes it's all they've ever seen. And again, it's not to excuse it, but it's just to seek a little bit of understanding so that we can we can relate to those ruptured relationships with compassion. I'm going to go ahead and, and go to the next one. Um, and this is one that I alluded to earlier. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. This is Proverbs 3, 5. I alluded to this one earlier when we, we were looking at the text of, you know, the human heart is deceitful. And here's how I've heard this particular text used. Um, people will use this text to get a person to doubt their in own inner wisdom or their innate warning signs. So for example, uh, wife is in an abusive home. She goes to the pastor or to the church and she says, my husband is abusive and, um, and I don't feel safe there. And the pastor says, well, you know, the Bible says you have to forgive and he is your husband. So just go home, you know, submit to him. And this, and this is actually things that people say in church, you know? Um, and then the wife comes back and says, well, wait a minute. I, I just, but I don't feel safe when I'm there. You know, I just, I feel like I shouldn't be there. Like it's just, you know, like I, I just don't, it just doesn't feel right. I think, I think I need to divorce or I need at least a separation. And then the pastor of the religious community will turn around and say, well, you can't trust your feelings. Because the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. And what you're doing right now is you're leaning on your own understanding by saying you don't feel safe there, even though God wants you to go back to your husband. So don't listen to your feelings because, you know, and they might even say things like, we don't live by feelings, we live by faith. And just trust the word of God that you are to go back to your husband. And I've seen this. And in some scenarios, tragically enough, um, these there have been cases where a wife is told by her church to go back to her abusive husband and is killed right so this is a scenario again where a beautiful text like this that you know solomon wrote as an encouragement as some spiritual wisdom is then twisted to mm. tell a person hey you can't trust anything about yourself you can only trust in the lord and what they usually mean by that is you can only trust in what we say the Lord says. So what, yeah, walk me through this one. Um, this is, uh, <laughs> this, this one really irks me. Yeah. It frustrates me as well. And I think there's a lot of examples we could talk about uh, in relation to this verse, but I think once again, this verse is really an invitation, right? It's an offering um, because we can actually be a wealth of wisdom. If we are learning from our experiences, 
But I think this is more of a call to realize that because we are all interconnected and we use this interconnectedness, the good and the bad, to make sense of ourselves and the world that we're living in, it is really trying to say, don't forget to bring your whole being back to the original source of goodness, you know, the original source of creativity and love and wonder, the creator. So fallen world or not, this is a beautiful call to stay close to our maker, right? It's not to shame ourselves and see ourselves as unable to be trusted. That's a really good point. And, and I would say just to add to that, let's go back to this particular scenario. This particular person, this particular wife, her felt sense is telling her this is not safe right? Her nervous system is telling her this is not safe. Okay. And that felt sense and that nervous system is coded by God. And I, I have said this, you know, to, to clients before, it is never, ever, ever safe to ignore your body. Ever. That doesn't mean your body's always right. It's possible that we have, you know, we can have felt senses that are warped by different experiences. That's that's definitely possible. That's okay. But whether that's true or not, it is never, ever, ever safe to ignore your body. At the very least, you should always pay attention to it and always seek good, balanced wisdom. Unfortunately, in this particular scenario, that's what the woman was trying to do. She felt the sense and she was like, I think I need to listen to this. Let me talk to my pastor. And unfortunately, she got this horrible advice, which is why I say, you know, talk to some good balanced people, you know, particularly people who don't have an agenda of control. So if you if you have a trusted counselor or therapist or friend, et cetera, uh, unfortunately, a lot of in a lot of religious communities, the agenda is control. So it's you know, there's sort of a bias there against you from the beginning. I'm not saying that it's not true of every church, but it does happen in high control religions. Uh, but I, again, just to come back to that basic point, it's never safe to ignore your felt sense, to ignore your body. Again, that doesn't mean it's always right, but you should always listen to it and explore and dig deep and get good, broad wisdom, you know, talk to different people about it. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and move on to the next one. Um, what is the next one? I'm just looking through the list here. Ah, yes. Uh, Matthew 6.15. Oh, man. I can already feel my skin crawling <laughs> at the way that this text is misused. Uh, Matthew 6.15, Jesus speaking, but if you forgive, if, sorry, let me start that again. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. And I've heard this text used against victims of abuse to guilt them into forgiving their perpetrators, often prematurely. Right. And usually what they mean by forgiveness is you should go back. You should be friends with them again. You should live with them again. You should you should act like nothing happened. Right. Yeah. This one really irks me. We touched on this, I think, in our um, in our workshop. But if you have any any thoughts on it, would love to hear your perspective on forgiveness from a from a psychological worldview. Well, I think. At the end of the day, forgiveness is not something you can force somebody else to do. You can't coerce them into forgiving. Forgiveness is a choice. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It can't look, you can't force it. Like it, it doesn't matter how much you could quote this verse to guilt people all they want. And they might, they might say, oh, I forgave the person. It's not, it, they haven't really, right. It's, it can't be forced. The interesting thing as well is the, the, the context of this. And Jesus actually tells a parable 
about a man who needed, uh, he, he owed a debt and he asked for forgiveness of his debt and his, his debtor forgave him. But then he had someone who owed him a debt and he didn't forgive him. Instead, he had him thrown in prison, right? And so what we're talking about here though is very, very different to the scenarios that this text is usually applied to. Like, for example, the victim of abuse. What we're talking about here is someone who has weaponized forgiveness. And so in this parable that Jesus is telling, he's talking about a person who's obviously very cunning and sly and manipulative. And they've weaponized forgiveness to get themselves out of a hole, but they're not interested in genuine forgiveness and reconciliation and right relationship because they turn around and someone else who could use forgiveness, they don't give it to them. They throw them in jail because, hey, you, you're not paying me what I'm owed, so off to jail you go. So we're talking about a person here who's weaponized forgiveness. He's a scam artist. He's, he's sly. He's cunning. He's sketchy, right? This is not the same as a person who's been the victim of an injustice, who has to go through a process of healing. And as a part of that process, forgiveness isn't even necessarily in the first three steps, you know, that may come, that conversation may come later on naturally and organically in its time, but they need to process, they need to heal. And to that, I would add as well. And it's a thing that frustrates me a lot in high control religions. This text is used against victims of abuse to get them to, you know, you put the weight on them. Hey, you have to forgive. But then the actual perpetrator is never held to account. Right. Or if they are held to account, it's just a little slap on the wrist. No big deal. You know, we're moving on. And it's what that scenario does is it re-traumatizes that victim. It just causes more harm and more pain. And of course, places them in an unsafe environment where they are likely to be victimized again. So just another one of those texts. It really irks me. <laughs> um, but we are really, really running out of time here. So I'm going to jump to the last two. Um, and I'm just going to comment on them quickly. And if you had something that you want to add, feel free to add it. Hebrews 10.25, very similar to the one that we just read. Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake meeting together as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So this is a text in the book of Hebrews where the author is basically telling people, don't stop gathering together as a church community. And I've heard this text used to guilt people into attending church, even though they have suffered harm in the church. Now, I'm not going to say too much about this because we have an episode coming up all about when it's time for you to stop going to church. All right. So, <laughs> um, so we're going to say a lot more about it then. But once again, it ties into the verse that I just read because you are putting the weight of responsibility on the victim and letting the people who contributed to the harm go scot-free. You know, mm -hmm. and, and this is just another example of misusing scripture. First of all, it's not what the book of Hebrews is talking about. The book of Hebrews has a completely different context that we'll explore in that future episode, but it's got nothing to do with people saying, I don't want to go to church anymore because the context is, you know, because people are judgmental and they're toxic and they're rude and they're harmful. And so I've decided to stop going. That's not what's happening in the book of Hebrews. So to use this verse to someone who has experienced harm in a church community to guilt them into going back is a total misuse of the verse. So one more, and then Candace, if you have any, any closing thoughts, I'd love to hear it. First John 2, 15 to 17, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, 
the love of the father is not in them. I'm just going to stop there because it just kind of repeats the same thing in different ways. Um, how is this text misused? It's I've heard it many times used to condemn anything that's not Eurocentric. And uh, again, I mentioned this a little while ago, but just to bring it up again, it's this idea. What, is, what do I mean by Eurocentric? It's the cultural values and expressions of, of, of the European or Anglo-American tradition. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with the European or Anglo-American Anglo expression, but texts like this are usually used to condemn anything that's not like that. So, for example, um, you know, the youth want to play some drums in the church. Oh, that's worldly. And the Bible says don't love anything that's in the world. We only sing hymns. But, like, what's wrong with drums? You know, and you can go down that rabbit hole, you know. For, I actually did a whole ep series of episodes on deconstructing the worship wars that I can put some sh links in the show note to. But the point is what you're seeing here is an attitude of the only cultural expression that God accepts is the Eurocentric or Anglo-American cultural expression. And from like the 1930s and before at that, and anything else, if it's indigenous, if it's African, you know, if it's native, if it's, you know, any, any of that cultural expression, well, that's worldly. And if the love of the world is in you, then you don't love God, you know? And so it's, it's used in this context. And, and what I would say is that in Jewish thinking, the world, whenever you see the phrase, the world come up in the Bible, in Jewish thinking, the world is always a reference to corrupt empires. It is never a reference to cultural expression. It's a reference to corrupt empires, systems of control, systems of marginalization, systems of exploitation, systems of injustice, whether they be social injustice or even ecological injustice. That's what the world is always referring to. It's not referring to cultural expressions. So anyways, I just threw a few little ones in there at the end, Candice, back to back because we're really short on time. Um, if you, I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of those before we wrap up. Yeah, I think what you said at the end there is so important that the world is a reference to systems of corrupt power. And you can be a super conservative Christian who does everything by the book and still be worldly if you are participating in those systems. And as we've seen today and talked about, we can we can participate in these systems by trying to control how others think. So we're not holding space for them and we're guilting and shaming them by misusing scripture. And I think God is calling us to a way of being that is defined by rhythm, harmony, balance, and love, a way unlike these systems of oppression and power. And that's, that's what I think it's all about. Very, very well said. Love it. Well, thank you guys for tuning in for our episode 11 Bible verses that get abused. Uh, I hope that you got some really, really good insight from this episode and we're really blessed by the different perspectives that we brought to the table. Thank you once again to everyone who shared their Bible verses on the Facebook post. And I'm sorry that we weren't able to address every single Bible verse, but I hope that we were able to hit at some really good ones here. Now, some of you might be thinking, why on earth did you guys skip the Bible verses about women being submissive and you know women being silent? You kind of brushed by it and didn't say much more. Well, the reason why we didn't address those in this episode is because we have episodes specifically dealing with those verses and workshops that are coming up in the near future. 
So it's not that we're ignoring them or not wanting to address them. It's that we are going to address them exclusively so that we can spend a really good amount of time deconstructing and challenging the assumptions that people bring to these texts and then seeing the heart of God in a more clear way through them. So watch this space, guys. That is going to be coming out very soon. In the meantime, please like and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify. When you like and subscribe, it really, really, really helps because then the algorithm treats the podcast more seriously and it promotes it to more people. So please like and subscribe. And if you go to our website, hungerpodcast.com, there are lots of resources there for you as well. So with all that said, thank you guys. And we will see you again next week.